1: Welcome to Nightlight. Glad you're here with us. I just want to say happy birthday to Jerry, Ann, and Mommy. Hey, uh, don't forget the uh, Mothman Festival is this weekend at Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And tomorrow, uh, you know, please join us with a new show. Uh, Barbara is starting with uh, Mary Joyce, and I will be on from nine to ten p.m. Eastern. Uh for the Nightlight Part Two shows, uh, this is basically a variety show, but the emphasis is on exploring hidden or lesser-known aspects of history. And there are two uh, conferences coming up. AAPS is October 4th through the 6th, and the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship is October 17th through the 20th. And we want to let the audience uh, know about these conferences, hope, hopefully attend them, uh, or you know, just just listen and learn something different. Our, our first guest is Dr. Steve Spireson. He is a dentist and has had a lifelong fascination with Atlantis Moo and the ancient cultures of the Middle East. He is... He has contributed articles to ancient American magazine uh, He will be presenting at the a a p s conference that's the ancient artifact preservation society uh his His website is infinitypeace dot com just want to say uh welcome Steve. how are you i'm I'm great thanks mark uh, okay, cool glad you're with us um, and when you do your presentation presentation next month, uh you'll be uh discussing Atlantis and moo um, And these are fascinating subjects you know, a lot of theories about them uh, but the first documented uh, you know, piece of literature about Atlantis comes from Plato. Uh he's a venerable person from antiquity is not presented as you know a extreme alternative historian that you know, you know there are dime a dozen today um, but you know, I think we need to take a look at this story behind the story. What
2: you
1: know know, this such an esteemed person from uh, prehistory seems to be depicting something that was really there. Uh, We aren't seeing it today. You, You know what did he, you? Know, where did he learn this uh, information about Atlantis, and and what was he being taught? Um,
3: yeah, no, this is an excellent starting point because uh, uh, yeah, this this came from uh, Socrates, who was the, the teacher. Plato was the student, um, and both of them they were they were philosophers. They were they were seeking the truths in the world. So they so this this wasn't they were not creating Whimsical uh, f- f- fictional stories. They, they wanted sure. to document what they felt was was truth. So, so where did where did Socrates and Plato get this? Well, um, that 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 goes back a hundred years before either of them um, were living, and that was a, a historical figure in Greece. He was a senator uh, by the name of Solon. He was a senator and uh, also a a poet, um, and he was a very uh, very well-respected uh, uh um, senator and uh, but he he got involved in some legislation that was uh um, very good very very needed but um some some people uh don't like changes so he started receiving some threats and some death threats so his other senators said hey hey solon uh we like what you did and we're not going to change anything but for your own safety why don't you uh why don't you just take a sabbatical for a few years till things cool down? So, so he he traveled to Egypt, which would have been on good relations with uh, with Greece at that time. And then when he was there, he heard about a um, an elder priest who could read the hieroglyphs on the columns at Karnak. Now Karnak mm-hmm. was then, and it still is, the largest columnar. Temple in the world, a uh, columnar temple, meaning that uh, it's just composed of these these gigantic columns, and there's hieroglyphs all along most of them so and and this priest said there was this story of these ancient sea people, the atlanteans, and uh, they had carved this story into stone and which uh, you know, so the so the priest was he said this this is our history. You know it's it's not a fable and uh solon was able to go to karnak with the priest the priest uh, uh told him the story and and the priest was glad to do this because in the in the final days um uh, the atlanteans were uh, were instead of wanting to trade with the world they were wanting to conquer the world and uh, they were as they were approaching to egypt all the other countries had fallen and uh, Egypt was about to fall, but the Greeks came to their aid in the last second and uh, last moments, and they were able to help repel the Atlanteans. So the so the Egyptians always were thankful to the Greeks for for helping them, um, even though there was a the, after the giant cataclysm of uh, Atlantis collapse, you know, exploding um, most most surface life in the Europe and, and Africa was wiped out but uh but prior to that the Greeks had helped. So so that was so that was the story that Solon had gotten and uh so he after a few years he was able to get back to Greece and then uh when he was back in Greece he told small groups of friends uh, many, many times uh about this story. And uh very often when he was telling his the story, his grandson would listen and years later after solon had passed and the grandson was an adult and when uh, socrates was uh, an, an adult and plato was a child uh, or a young person uh, uh, plato and socrates heard the story from solon's
0: grandson
3: so the whole thread line of this story is is two kids uh, solon you know this solon gets the story from the priest who reads it from the the columns at Karnak. Mm-hmm. Solon's grandson hears it. Solon's grandson tells Socrates and Plato um, after Socrates dies, and Plato then does uh, writes his dialogues. And, and all the dialogues are, are named after a, an individual who does most of the talking. And uh, um, so there we have the Timaeus and the Critias that uh, talked about the, the founding of Atlantis that uh, Solon had learned and also the end days so um so uh, interesting uh interesting and a very you know the, the uh the story about the founding of atlantis is is in the middle of a of a larger chapter where they're talking about the whole history of the universe and atlantis is just one part of that atlantis, the atlantis description is just five five pages inside of the bigger chapter um so um so they and it it tells about both so so yeah
1: and uh, steve do you know since we're you know talking about the a mediterranean uh setting for you know, the exchange of information about uh a- atlantis uh do, do you See Atlantis being located where Santorini is, you know, the island of Santorini is now located, or do you see it outside of uh, the Mediterranean towards, you know, it, it, in the Atlantic Ocean?
3: Can I, can I probably roughly, you know, the, the, the um, Plato's description gives, gives the uh, uh, exact size and stadia, which is the Greek measurement. And it was, so it was probably somewhat bigger than the state of Illinois, um, you know, somewhere in the, in, the, in the middle of the Atlantic. I think uh, one of the outposts or outer islands might have been touching our, uh, uh, in the vicinity of like the Bahama Islands. Uh, that would have been like the north, northwest, um, northwest of the island. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then that's that's just a that's just our best estimate. Okay. Uh, we we know that Plato's description described as beyond the gates of Hercules, which were um, uh, Gibraltar. So so it was, okay. it was west of that, and in the which would put it in the Atlantic.
1: Okay. Well, yeah, there are a number of theories of of uh, where the uh, all the concentric. Uh, rings were located and, you know, it's just I- interesting to get uh, various points of view it, it, and, and it's, it seems like it was a very literate society um, and the sea of reeds uh, seems to have survived as a symbol of uh, you know the you know, the literature that was, uh, produced on the island and you, know, you also get the, uh, 12 emerald tablets. Uh, yeah, you know, that's an extension totally. of this, uh, m- mystery as well. Uh, you know, h- how did the, uh, th- these emerald tablets fit into all the stories or, you know, or, or, or are, are they mentioned on the hieroglyphs at Karnak, or where? how are they introduced into this story? Um, well, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth
3: the Atlantean um, is, is what Thoth is claiming to be one of the last remaining uh, priest kings from Atlantis. Actually, his dad was one of the kings. He was basically the son or a prince uh, during the final moments and they were not living on the, and that's, that's a whole nother story. There was a, a dissension there on the main island. Probably the, the peacekeeping leaders had been exiled, self-exiled or politically exiled to a separate Island that was walled and no one could go, go on to the Island or go from one half to the other half. And that's where, where both had lived. And then in the final days, uh, uh, various of the priests um, were able to 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 fly or to travel to different parts of the world and settled uh, in Mayan area and and uh, uh, Samaria and Tibet um, and Thoth went to uh, the land of the Khem or, or Egypt and and he claimed that uh, he created the Egyptian uh, um, civilization that he he educated them and he built the, the the Great Pyramid was an energy transducing device to to prolong his life. Um, so, so yeah, he that he claims that you know that he wrote that in the Atlantean language, and um, that, that uh, there was a translator who 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 said that he was able to to read that, and then he has translated into into recent uh, publication. So. Um, but yeah, he, uh, and those, those claims that he, he, he created the, the, the pyramid for his purpose. Um, and when you look at the pyramid, um, well, you know, they say, oh, well, it was a tomb for one of the Pharaohs. Well, what they call a sarcophagus that was in the King's room. Um, it was too big to have come through any of the hallways. It was, it was the purpose for which that the pyramid was built. The pir- pyramid was built around this so-called sarcophagus, um, mm-hmm. and and that's that's entirely consistent with those said. It, it was not that it was not meant to house a, a dead body. This was a positioning device where he put it in a central part of the uh, pyramid where it would collect the energies from the from the pyramid. And and the very word pyramid refers to this. It's, it's Greek but it appear uh, means fire or energy amid means within. So it's, it's referring to the, to the energy that, uh, the, that the pyramids, pyramids are built on every single continent on this world. Um, uh, there was, I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, a, a contractor built a, a, a pyramid in Gurney, Illinois, and he had strange things happen, uh, that, and we can't get into all the details but he could not buy an unripe banana because it would never ripen um just just had strange effects on uh um so so uh, close so claimed that he, he he used that to rejuvenate his his body and the and the so-called sarcophagus it was simply a positioning device he placed that uh, in a specific position inside the king's chamber um, so that it would uh, hit him, probably, probably in the pineal gland. Pineal gland, um, and and since then, in modern they've they've moved the sarcophagus. It's not where it used to be, so we we don't know where it had originally been. So, um, yeah. so yeah.
1: It's, Steve, it, you know, I've read you know a little bit about this energy plant theory and yeah there there seems to be uh some other kind of soot uh, uh, other than yeah you know, from, from a uh a, a torch being taken down yeah you know, the, the those passageways uh, it, uh, yeah,
3: there's there's no soot there's yeah. no soot and there's no light in there. Um, and, and if you go, once you get to a certain point, there's no air in there. Uh, a candle or a, or a torch wouldn't, wouldn't stay lit because there's not enough air in there. So, so they had to have had, I mean, unless they were just walking by pure intuition, they had to have an electronic lighting system or some crystal source of light to, to get in there. Cause there's, there is no soot. There's no evidence of any fire having been in there. To, to yeah, there.
1: Yeah, there's like it, yeah, very interesting. It, yeah, there's some other kind of. Uh, well, uh, I use the word soot might have been the wrong for, uh, like a residue of some other chemicals on the ceiling. It, okay, it, it, it just sounds like there was something else going on inside the pyramid. Of uh, key ops than just ha- housing some uh, body, it's right. I, uh, 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 I, it, it's, it's really an intriguing uh, subject. Um, I, mean, I have to expand on that in another show, but um, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, you're yeah. So we have these. Some. Okay. Energy can we, plants. Can I?
3: Can I uh, um. Okay. Well. Yeah. You take take this however you want to. Whatever okay. direction you want to take. Okay, so,
1: I could. Uh, yeah. Okay. So 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 Atlantis is. Yeah. You know, out in the uh, Atlantic Ocean, you get. Uh, you know, advanced technology energy plant thing being co- constructed in Egypt. It, and you mentioned uh it, you know so, some of these outposts. You know, I've read uh, a little bit about you know these outpost theories uh like in Spain you get like uh, the the Basque uh language and uh and Barbara and Greg uh, little did a show on you know covered some of the bimini road I- information it it, it just se- seems like all around the uh what's now the atlantic uh, yes. yeah. shoreline that that there are you know, what could be uh, interpreted as these out Outposts. Can, can you explain a little bit about that, and how does how do these outposts re- relate to North America and the, uh, the Native Americans, uh, and all of your information that you'll be uh, presenting at the Ancient Artifact Preservation Society? Um, yeah yeah exactly
3: when, when when the
1: spanish when
3: they were when they were uh, um conquering the canary islands they they were coming on an indigenous uh, tribe and and uh, who who were who worshiped a god very similar to um uh poseidon uh and they were tall they were like uh, uh six seven foot tall they were very robust although uh, um and and uh uh, Fair-skinned fair and blue-eyed, so you know, not not typical um, natives that you would uh, not not a different a totally different um, race than than the rest of Africa. So uh, they that that had probably some Atlantean connections, and also uh, well, Edgar Casey in the 1930s
2: mm. he
3: said um, he said in 1968, you know, not Atlantis proper, but an outpost of of Atlantis would be discovered in nineteen sixty eight and uh, very specifically in nineteen sixty eight that's when uh, Bimney road was was found. and when you when you look at the uh, the uh, the images that come from this, you're seeing what looks like could be a road, except that the structure is not that long. And it ends as a J. Well, that's not a road. And so, when when they've done excavations of this, when you get to the edge of the so-called road and you keep going down, it's it's all stacked vertically. It's it's not a road. It's a wall. So so that hmm. could you know that's a possibility that that could have been the island that uh, Soth had uh, referred to as uh, an outpost of. Of atlantis and also when you when you uh you look at word origins, that's another way of of trying to figure out what's what's going on here. Um, Bahama and Bimini they don't relate to um anything in English they don't relate to anything in the Spanish language they don't uh, relate to the indigenous language that 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 was Arawak where the the natives and nor any other um American indigenous uh so it had no origins but if you look if you take the word Bahamini that's that is ancient Egyptian and it means um honor to the god Min, the god who protects those who travel far or to distant lands so um there you get your Egyptian connection um and uh you 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 look at um um you know some of the uh some of the pharaohs mummies, they had uh traces of coca and nicotine um in, in the in in their tissues. So that that's that has to come from the New World and that's that's Atlantis was trading uh between the New World and, and to Europe and Africa and Egypt. So um there's there's uh, it just uh, that that kind of makes sense so um so yeah there's there's just some uh, interesting interesting uh things and then uh unfortunately we don't know as much about the bimbing road as we could because in the 1930s uh salvage ships were coming in and they found these oh all these nice free rectangular huge blocks and they took uh, thousands of them and, and they took them to the miami harbor so uh probably parsh portions of the of the uh, outpost, potential outposts of Atlantis, they're just they're sitting in the Miami Harbor, um, underwater. Um, unfortunately, so they've been they've been displaced. Um so so yeah, yeah there's uh there's uh there's that and uh, uh and let me just briefly say that the Egyptians also confirm uh the Thoth story because in their pharaonic dynasties um, one of the earlier dynasties was uh, um a very ancient dynasty and and then later one of the more recent ones was Ramses well Thuthmosis mm-hmm. means means tooth Moses and Ramses means Ra Moses. Uh in, in Egyptian Moses means in the lineage of. So tooth Moses means in the lineage of Thoth and that one comes first. And Ramses, a later god, after Thoth, Ra Moses in the lineage of Ra. So um so the the Egyptians refer to Thoth in their pharaonic dynasties. So um that, that kind of confirms the uh it, it's a confirmatory uh for the kind of confirms the the, the emerald tablets of sozi atlantean so um lots lots of links that are are here so
1: yes yeah, yeah see uh, yeah that's an interesting point you know, it's when Barbara and i had uh Ahmed osman on uh he he was presenting it uh, some of these uh uh you know the pharaonic names and di- different uh interpretations uh, you know f- from Atlantis but uh, uh, he, you
2: know
1: he he's looking at uh like tutmosis and uh uh, uh uh you know it was um uh you know the biblical moses and it's it, it just It's really interesting that – and now that you bring up this uh, topic, that that, 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 there's something behind the names. And Mm -hmm. in in this case, it's always this Moses figure that's uh, doing stuff like throwing a staff down, turns into snakes, and – is involved with the burning bush and all that kind of uh, stuff that is, you know, really, uh, supernatural. There's, it's always, you know, like this same guy, the, uh, religious figure in Egypt. And it it just, uh, he, he just seems like he just keeps reappearing in different, uh, uh, connotations. It, 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 there's just a power behind the name. It, yeah, it, yeah, it, it's yeah, really interesting.
3: Yeah. 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 Well. Well. Yeah. You go. You go to the, the word Moses. Well, that that's not that's not Jewish. Moses has nothing to do with the Jewish language. So here they they name this guy. After an Egyptian word, and and in Egyptian it means in the lineage of, and that's that's kind of consistent with Moses. Moses was he was uh, orphaned. He they mm-hmm. didn't know where he came from. But uh, most likely Moses is a reference to Akhenaten. Um, it's probably more the story of Akhenaten and Achen. And we that's 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 a whole other topic. Akhenaten was was Hathor. Um, a totally different, uh, almost a totally different race than the rest of the Egyptians. They had a long, narrow, tapering face, uh, and his wife Nefertiti, she mm-hmm. had she had the elongated skull. Um, yeah, and what did Akhenaten do? He he, he changed their... Um, the, from the Amun priests who worship multiple gods. He he tried to convert to the same as Judaism. To one, one, male, one God, the Aten, the Sun. So, and then, and then the Amun priests got mad and uh, they chased him out. Uh, they wanted to go back to the old ways. Um, but so, this, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that Moses really was the Akhenaten uh, uh, king. Um, so, yeah, very, very interesting. But we we could get sidetracked into that and and try and get into the a connection to King Tut and and
1: yeah. and right. that, but uh, we we'll yeah. just have to we we'll just have to do another show. But yeah, like, yes, absolutely. Yeah, you, know, you know the point is, you, know, you just can't ignore some of these names. You know, it's like uh, they're
3: significant. Yeah, you
1: know, like, you know, like you know what you're saying, like you know the Moses name or uh, like the. Uh, Bahamas and Bimini. Yeah, the, the, those aren't colonial era English Spanish type right. names. They got yeah. So you know there's yeah, you know, linguistic stuff that, that that needs to be uh, considered. But yeah, uh, 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 have, have, have have you gotten into um, uh, using uh, the Google Earth to look at um, you know the ocean floors and you, know, you get you know, like the north sea has a Doggerland, uh really shallow area where there was uh probably some kind of prehistoric crossing between uh what the netherlands and uh england um
3: yeah there's there is a and I don't know if this Google image uh, exists anymore. I had made a copy of it uh, maybe ten years ago, and I can't I can't find it in the current Google Earth anymore. But uh, it showed it showed a um, it was just a Google Earth uh, satellite uh, radar image um, in, the, in the middle of the Atlantic, and it showed an obvious uh, um, city type you know, uh, type inhabitation just in the middle of the ocean. So, um, so there are those. Uh, plus, you also have uh, on the other side of the world, you have Yonaguni, which is a, a temple, uh-huh. uh, 200 uh, 200 feet, uh, you know, much deeper than Bimini Road, uh, 200 feet under the water, um, just on the southern tip of Japan, um, and it's a temple with uh, um, steps and uh, um, statues, and there's uh, there's alpha we can see language. On some relics that came from there, so um, probably you know, so it, it it could easily relate to the earlier civilizations of Mu of and Lemuria.
1: It, 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 and that is ba- based on a- a excluding the possibility that the uh, w- waves. Just it happened to erode all these ninety-degree angles in the form of a, a, a long flight of steps that that they go up to a perfectly flat uh, platform a- area. Yeah, yeah. When when you look at the <laughs> the whole the whole of the of the
3: Yonaguni uh, uh, temple, uh, when you look at it, you, you just you just uh, know it it's it's been humanly altered uh, they made they they made hallways they stairways they made statues uh they made archways um so it's 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 obviously n- not the raw uh stone anymore it's 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 been it's been crafted once once you look at the the whole thing so um it, it, they're very interesting and, and very deep hard to explain uh, at what at what point that was that uh, that was made? But uh, it it seems to imply it was a long, long time ago. Is
1: is there any uh, way to date Yonaguni to correspond with uh, like? moo and uh, you know, the pyramid of Cheops. Oh, uh, uh and oh, oh my gosh can't can't forget to mention the bosnian pyramid maybe, you know, maybe barbara will ch- chime in uh, briefly if she's uh yeah not uh if she's feeling like the bronchitis is uh allowing her to uh say something <laughs> about her favorite topic but yeah, you know, th- <laughs> there's like that possibility that all, all all three of those uh places could be like super ancient and it's you know Barbara did had, had that one you know show with Dr. Sam on where you know, Sam he,
3: Osmuch, he, yeah. He,
1: he, yeah 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 well, with he's, the he's, a, he's awesome you know, the, yeah the uh yeah, there's that internal structure of the passageways going into uh, the Bosnian pyramid, and, and it's like it's like twenty uh, five thousand years old. Uh, do do we have any dates on Yonaguni? Well, yeah, the the
3: Bosnian Bosnian pyramid is is uh, it's dated to be far older than the than the Egyptian pyramids. It's, it's bigger, and uh, the the Egyptian Pyramid is so accurate. It's like within one, one degree of perfectly aligned with north. But the Bosnian period, and, and this is a, a theme that we see all over the world, the more ancient the artifact, it seems to be more, uh, uh, just more amazing in how it was constructed. It seems to be that they were, they seemed to be the more ancient, the more amazing and, and uh, impossible they were. The Bosnian period uh, appears to be far older. It's, 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 um, the, the, the Egyptian period is pyramid is within one degree of being of, of pure, pure north. The Bosnian period pyramid is, is within zero degrees. And like one minute and twelve seconds, so it's like it's like like a hundred times more accurately aligned with with true north even than uh, than the Egyptian one. And and it wasn't made of stone. it's it's a uh, um, it's a it's a form of concrete, and, it, and the and mm-hmm. the um, the the density and strength of it far surpass anything that we're using today it's just and and you referred to the tunnel system that uh that's there so so yeah so the bosnian pyramid appears to be far far more ancient than the, than the egyptian one and i i suggest all of these things including stonehenge um all of these are far more ancient than what uh what we commonly think uh you know if you go back to the Sphinx. Remember that 3,500 years ago, the Pharaoh was, uh, they were doing restoration to the base of the Sphinx because it had severe water erosion around the base. So they were trying, and and at that time they did the repairs and that Pharaoh put up the Dream Stella in front of the Sphinx. Hmm. Um, So they, and and the, the Pharaoh had no idea who built the Sphinx. They were just, they were amazed by it, and they were preserving what they had, but they didn't know um, where it had come from. Same same thing with Machu Picchu. You know, you 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 go to all the uh, Western uh, archaeologists. Oh, well, Machu Picchu was built a thousand years ago. Well, well, go ask an Incan shaman. You know, oh, did did you guys build Machu Picchu a thousand years ago? And they'll go no when we came here a thousand years ago machu picchu was here and we have no idea who built it it looked mm-hmm. th- like it looked then a thousand years ago like it does today so we're referring to civilizations that came and gone and uh we don't we don't have much information on them either uh and then one more link is is Easter Island, and I know you like talking about. Oh that. yeah. Um, we get into the moa, and uh, they're they're situated. Most of the moa are right on the outer periphery of the island, and uh, uh, a lot of them are facing outward. Well, the Rapa Nui, who are the, the natives on on that, they say um, this: the statues are placed in 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 honor of, and in memory of their mother continent which was Mu, and the, the eyes are looking upward um, because uh, the Mu and Lemurians recognized that they had uh, um, contact from star, star relatives that, that had aided their civilization. And, and just in the less than 10 years, we've, we realized that those statues are not 10, 15 feet tall of just the chest and head. Now they've done excavations. They go, oh, oh, actually these statues are thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy feet tall. Okay, and they're buried up to their chests. So why would why would you build why would you make a seventy foot statue and then bury it in the ground? Well, they didn't bury them. They were silted in, and and if if you have any any concept of the siltation process it's very slow and it's very gradual it 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 pretty much implies that those statues were probably created in terms of uh, perhaps a half a million years ago and that's entirely consistent with uh, the end point of mu uh, according to the myth, mythology of that, that mu Pre-existed. Then Len was a was a, a daughter c- civilization of Mu. So um, so yeah yeah. There's there's lots of these uh, ancient you know these these tidbits of information that that give us a glimpse that uh, this stuff is really really old, much much older than we've been taught. Okay, so very interesting.
1: Yeah, and what there there are inscriptions on the moai uh yes. well, it is, uh obviously just the the statues themselves are uh, remnants of some cultures artwork uh, you know, uh maybe it, it, it you know, just direct uh uh to, you know, co- connection to L- lemuria uh you, you, we, ha- you know, we have you know we have these uh samples of artwork maybe you know uh, you know we touched on a little bit of the language you know uh you know, probably in a, a few weeks when we have david brody on you know we'll probably touch on that uh information in, in, in more detail but um it, it it just seems like we have in the Atlantic and in uh the Pacific you know, uh, remnants of these cultures um you know when, when you present this stuff at uh AAPS um you, know, you have you know, a, lot, a, a, a lot of people showing up who have open minds uh how, how do you know the mainstream uh historians just deny all, all this uh evidence it's 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 right there uh, you, you can look yeah, at the yeah. science about the silt i i think uh when uh Dennis stone was uh, yeah, you know, on, on with us. He he talks like uh about there's something like the scientific evidence shows that there's like a inch of uh it takes a hundred years to make a inch of uh um inch of silt, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah Accumulation yeah. so, so, uh, It's probably less than that it, even it's, yeah the decaying per, per year yeah, yeah yeah the decaying leaves and pine needles and you know, it, it, yeah. it, it it's a very slow process right 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 so um, uh, the, but but the information's right there's science backing it up
3: yeah yeah science mainstream science just ignores ignores the stuff that they that they, they don't want because uh, they have their favored theories and they protect them, uh, and and anything that doesn't doesn't align with their favorite theories, whether it's Darwinism or or their timeline of uh, of uh, how old these 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 things are. If you know, because I part of part of my talk, I go into some really anachronistic uh, artifacts, things that are way way out of uh, the old things, iron cups and bra- brass. Brass uh, um, bells and uh, hollow spheres—they're they're, they're in, embedded in coal um, that's in the four to five hundred year strata, um, or these hollow metal spheroids from uh, silver mines in South Africa—they're embedded in like the one plus billion years. It's very specific, and they're very human created. Um, there's human. Hu- Footprints in limestone, uh, alongside dinosaur, and that's in 150 150 million year strata. So uh, we have a lot of, and, and mainstream scientists won't touch that. You know, the, but the, these dinosaur and human tracks, you can go to Texas in Paluxy, Texas. There they are. Um, so, and, and there's there's a, a iron headed hammer embedded in limestone. It's, 150 million years old um how do you explain that you know not not by darwinism as we understand it or or archaeology and, and timelines that we we have uh um it goes goes way beyond uh, what we've been taught and told but uh, uh you, you can <laughs> let me you know, let me just put this in reference you know sure a uh, quick because uh as long as we're going on this this tangent, um, under, just remember the the Earth is is roughly five billion years old, right? Yeah. And and the the much of the rest of our galaxy, and much of the rest of the universe is up to fifteen billion years old. So it is not a stretch of the imagination. You know, the Earth is pretty new, 5 billion years. You know, when when we were first created, other other life forms could have been from 10 billion, could, could have pre-existed us by 10 billion years. So it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that there is highly advanced uh, civilizations that have, been, that, that have been observing us from the moment we were created. And, and if they were observing us, they were visiting they were making camps they were having come and go civilizations they were they were there would probably be artifacts you know for almost as long as you could set foot on this on this planet i mean it would defy imagination to say that that couldn't have happened um it's just far more likely that uh, we've been observed and and uh um, followed and and uh intervened with for a long long time so um so yeah yeah, yeah, just the the more the more it seems like in in the ancient the apps the uh the ancient artifacts, these guys are non these are guys the scientists who are trying to be truly scientific that they they want to be open minded, they want to explore and talk about all the science- the the artifacts that mainstream scientists won't touch so so they're being far more scientific and you know open minded. And I'm going to be stretching stretching their, their uh, scientific tolerance because uh, they, they want to stay hardcore archaeology. And, and I'm trying to introduce, uh, just, just crack open the door and say, hey, you know, we need to listen to what the indigenous people have to say because the, the indigenous, everything we've talked about so far, Mark, you know, the indigenous is saying, yeah, all that stuff happened. Lemuria was here. Mu was here. Atlantis was here. We've been visited by star relatives, you know. And yep. then all these other, you know, the the, the linguistics and uh, the the ages and and accuracies of these ancient ancient structures, um, they just don't jive with what we've been told by mainstream science and archaeology. So, so apps is, is is they are trying to. To really open the door and, and 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 look at this stuff that uh, most most scientists won't look at so um, it's it's really a privilege to 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 be part of that group
1: okay and, and if um you want to know more about this conference you can go to their website a uh, a a p f dot org it's being held in. Uh, the Island Resort C- Casino Convention Center in Harris, Michigan, October fourth, fifth, uh, and sixth. I got uh, aside from yep. Steve speaking. um yeah, you know, th- you know, Rick Osmond. He's going to be a guest with us next Wednesday. Lon Krieger. Uh, he was uh I, I guess with us a couple times. Uh yeah, you know, yeah. we have John or Joan uh Conover who is going to be our guest on October first. are be covering uh <clears throat> these uh ancient canals in uh you know the um Gulf of Mexico area, uh Lee Pennington is going to be up there, mm-hmm. t- you know, uh, talking about the uh, Brandenburg Stone. Uh, you know, Ron Rat- Rademacher is going to be uh, covering his um, Macintosh Stone. Yeah. yeah, you know, the hieroglyph. Uh, there are back to the hieroglyphs. Uh, we don't know what language was was used for these. Um, you know put put on these uh th- this pebble but yeah it, 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 it's like they they were uh chiseled with such fine detail it it almost mm-hmm. looks like they were uh carved uh, by someone using a dremel yeah i I, yeah. I it's i i i don't know how you I explain it other, other than I, I, I don't know what kind of uh you know, but yeah t- tiny yeah. Equip, uh, equipment used uh to make so many detailed um, hi- hieroglyphs on the size of the pebble that is a little bit larger than a quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah,
1: yeah they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're Steve, yeah. what you've discussed so far, uh, it, like, you know, the speakers are you know, just presenting uh, things that information that uh, needs to be addressed. And, you know, if, you know if, uh, what you're talking about with Easter Island or, you know, Ron's Macintosh Stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know, but at least you know GD putting on this conference to get people to talk about things like this. Yep. Yeah. You know, what you know, at, at a gathering like this with you know so, so many intriguing speakers, you, uh, what do you think? America needs to discover um,
3: America
1: yeah oh, well,
3: you know you know my 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 fondest dream and and I think the apps conference is, is echoes the same thing is that all of these speakers um we need to be in 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 schools as, as early as grade schools you know. The kids would love to hear this stuff but we we we're, we're just taboo we need to be in schools talking about mythology and indigenous stories we need to talk about atlantis and lemuria and ancient greece and these and all these these uh these findings that mainstream scientists don't want to talk about um so it it needs to be in the school like what the what the kids could do the, the imagine what what the imaginations that we could spark by just presenting this to the young people, um, and, you know, getting them to understand some of these sacred geometric principles that are inscribed in these, you know, spirals and Fibonacci sequence and, and, uh, sacred geometrics that are used at all of these, all of these, um, archaeological sites all over the world, they all use a common language and that's sacred geometry and, and basic principles of, um, so, so they 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 knew a lot, and uh, it's just such a shame that that our young people are not getting exposed to this. Um, so yeah, it, it'd be it'd be wonderful if we could just crack open that door. Um, and uh, you know the th- the thing is that stuff all over the world. Uh, Bar- Barbara had mentioned earlier that uh, there was an ank on the back of the uh, MOA statue on Easter Island. We're seeing depictions of elephants that are, uh, you know, in some of the archaeological structures in South America. Well, South America didn't have elephants. They were from India and Asia. So um, if you had a giant continent in between India and South America, maybe Mu had elephants. And then it's not so illogical that that South America could travel to to moo, and they could see elephants, so then then the world gets smaller, you know, and things you know mm-hmm. how how we talked about uh, coca and nicotine getting uh traded with with egypt, um even though it was a new world new world uh yeah, if you had a continent in between it it makes it real easy um mm-hmm. it it and and it just it it just all explains why. So many of these things why there's so much we see so many of the same depictions all over the world, even though um you know this animal only existed in this part, but you see depictions of it in in other parts of the world so um so yeah there's a lot of interesting pieces that fall into place once you uh um, I think as you explore different options such as existence of Atlantis and Lemuria um, and uh, some of those things so yeah oh
1: it's um fascinating in- information and it ha- has there been any un- unbiased DNA testing and you, know, you just spoke about the mummies, but is there any dna testing from um, easter island i don't know. You know, I, 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 I don't yeah. know if there was any burials there i i i just i i just kind of throwing something out it, it seems like some of the Basque people have some different uh, DNA, and I, I was just wondering: it, you know, have you encountered any uh, r- reports that show s- something different about, uh, you know, if there was any any burials from the Pacific that uh, give, give us more credence? for the uh, Lemuria uh, concept? Well, um, maybe not to be,
3: uh, you know, I suspect um, that there's a ton of evidence that, that uh, scientists who've done genetic testing that they have found, but I don't think any of that has surfaced. I, I you know, you know, if people do the ancestry.com and they, oh yeah, I trace my, my, my ancestors back 10 generations or whatever. And they came from here and here. But, uh, you know, the, the real question is what star system did we come from? And, and, uh, some of the, I mean, and when you, when you, with the bat, you refer to the Basque, well, the Basque have a high, a high percentage of RH negative plus, plus their language is totally unique. It, it doesn't really mm-hmm. trace to track to any other language and they have a, a, um, the highest percentage of Rh negative. Well, the Rh factor system, Rh positive means that um, your blood is similar to our closest uh, ma- mammalian relative, which is the monkey. Rh negative means it's not. Hello. Protected. Hello are you there.
1: Yeah. Uh, hey, hey uh, uh, S- Steve. F- f- finish your thought. I, j- I just uh, got our. Next oh, are guest, Are down? Yeah, oh. yeah we um, have about
3: yeah. another minute. Okay. Yeah, just, just that uh, um, the bass uh, were a totally different uh, blood. It uh, uh, seems to be a different genetic. So, so no, I think uh, it has been a privilege to be, be on the show, uh, Mark and Barbara. So thank you very much. And uh, if anybody can have opportunity to go up to the APPS conference, it's up near Escanaba, Michigan it's it's well worth uh well worth the weekend so um hopefully we can get on and talk uh, get on in the future and talk some more about these things
1: okay uh we'll do that Steve T- thank you so much and we're going to bring our next guest on you just h- hang up we'll get the archive to you tomorrow and uh you know, we'll, we'll we'll stay in touch
3: okay thank you Mark and Barbara and
1: and all the listeners all right T- take care Steve thank you okay good night okay we and we have our second hour guest uh I didn't screw up the production of that one, so uh we we will keep plugging along um uh Ramon Jimenez is returning to discuss the fascinating Shakespeare authorship controversy. Uh, Ramon was with us just about a year ago to discuss the release of his book Shakespeare's Apprenticeship and the Ox- Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference. I think the, uh, last year the book was so new that uh, you know, there wasn't even a, a press uh, copy of, <laughs> available at the time, and, but yeah, you know, that's changed, and you know, Sh- Shakespeare's Apprenticeship – is an insightful, compelling book on this long standing question about who wrote the Shakespearean plays that we all read and uh, you know, get through high school. And Ramon does an excellent job of making a, a convincing case that we, we've been attributing the world's most revered canon to the wrong person. Um, Ramon has also been an advisor on several other books on this uh, topic, like uh, Catherine Children's uh, Shakespeare Suppressed and Mark Anderson's uh, Shakespeare by... Another Name. Uh, that you know, Both of those are also excellent books. Um, and Ramon will also be presenting at the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference in Hartford, Connecticut on October 17th through the 20th. And you can learn more about the conference uh, by uh, going to the ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org so, uh, w- welcome, Ramon. How are you? Thanks for returning.
4: I'm, I'm fine, thanks, Mark. Good to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, this is, we're just glad you're back, and I, I, this is just, I, I just really enjoy this uh, uh, subject, and, um, I, you know, have a copy of your book, and. Your book focuses on five anonymous uh, unremarkable plays from the Elizabethan time period when there uh, were an overwhelming amount of plays written. Uh, But you you claim that Five of these plays are basically juvenile works from the person who wrote what we know as you know the Shakespearean plays. How did you learn about these five plays in particular?
4: Well about uh, twenty years ago, I came upon a short anonymous history play called "The Famous Victories of Henry v and uh, reading it and rereading it, looking through it, I realized that uh, this was the story that uh, Shakespeare tells in Henry the Fourth, Parts one and two, and Henry the v and it looked to me as though this was a uh, a uh, kind of shorter, uh, cheaper, cruder version of that trilogy. And uh, over the course of time, I found uh, four other plays uh, that seemed to be uh, in the same category. That is, uh, early plays, uh, the first versions of canonical plays uh, with which we are very familiar. Uh, uh, The True Tragedy of Richard III is uh, Shakespeare's first version of Richard III. It has uh, largely the same cast and roughly the same plot Mm -hmm. um, ending uh, with uh, Richard uh, being killed on the uh, battlefield at Bosworth. Uh, another one is the Troublesome Reign of John, uh, and uh, this is the same category—a uh, uh, play about the reign of John and uh, all all of his uh, quarrels with uh, with the pope and with the French king and with the barons and so on. And it's obviously an, an early version of King John that that we uh, that we see today. Uh, the fourth one is the Taming of a Shrew. Nearly the same title as uh, the play in the Shakespeare canon. Roughly the same characters. uh, Roughly the same plot. And then the last one is a short romance called King Lear. Mm -hmm. uh, Which uh, 30 years after he wrote that, he transformed that into the tragedy King Lear that we're familiar with today. So they are not only all early versions of Shakespeare plays, but they're all very similar to each other in their language and in the uh, quality of their verse. And as you said, uh, they are not uh, top rated plays. These are rather poor plays. They are not at the Shakespeare standard, Uh, but from the language And the characters, the dramatic devices, the plots, uh, they are clearly uh, Shakespeare's first versions.
2: Okay,
1: Ramon, you you just mentioned it's not the Shakespeare uh, standard uh, that we would expect. And you you, you bring up uh, early on in your book, where uh, you know there there, there is the um, um, occasional comment about um, uh, you know, Sh- Shakespeare uh, plagiarized uh, these works, like as uh other you know academics say well um you know Shakespeare wrote this stuff and it's just what came out of you know the off his little quill was you know uh, perfect as you know, like the way uh, Mozart or Beethoven wrote it it, it was just perfect uh yeah you know, hardly any revisions and we have the master uh, masterpiece uh on the first draft and and get uh, and you also bring up uh, another point about um other uh uh shakespearean scholars are saying that um he 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 spent a lot of time re- revising uh, uh, these works until we get you know the you know the f- finished masterpiece that you know we all are reading in, in school. So you, you have like a variety of theories, and and uh, you, know, you you were just mentioning. Richard III um yeah that, that that's an example of uh, of uh, you have uh, a a passage in your book about um the opening soliloquy with um uh, uh Richard talking about he wasn't made for sportive tricks right and that was you know, something that appears in the like, this, like uh uh play that yeah you're suggesting maybe the author was actually what maybe 13 14 years old
2: but it, right.
1: it, it it's it's showing up uh 30 40 years later in, like, one of the all time great uh, vi- villain as the hero type stories, Pattern for right. the Godfather. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about that, this revision? Yeah, you know, just constantly working on getting th- these characters and phrases right over a long
4: period of time. Yes. Uh... Shakespeare, uh, like a lot of our finest writers over history, was a compulsive writer. And he he never stopped revising his plays. And this is very common among, uh, let us say, the genius class of creator. It's it's true of Beethoven, it's true of Mozart, and it's true of uh, Tolstoy, for instance. Uh, and uh what what I uh, found, I think, are his first versions of of these five, actually seven uh, canonical plays. Uh, there are also uh, beside besides uh, this early version, other versions of many of the plays, some of the plays such as uh, Romeo and Juliet, and uh, Hamlet, Othello. there are several versions of them, and their scholars are even arguing now about uh, uh, the timelines for these versions. Uh, uh, something like oh fifteen or so of Shakespeare's published plays say on the title page that he has revised and corrected them. So, he was constantly doing this. And uh, I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, these, these early plays, they uh, they are very well plotted. That's been remarked by scholars about these plays. But the uh, verse, the language, is not up to the Shakespeare standard, as I said. And here's one example. We all know the uh the famous line at the end of Richard III, where Richard has been thrown to the ground in the Battle of Bosworth, and he shouts out, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Mm -hmm. Well, the first version of that scene, the dialogue went, a horse, a horse, a fresh horse. So uh, in his revision, Shakespeare added En- enough language to make the meter work. But not only that, he added uh, an- another element to the, uh, t- to the line. That is, he would give his kingdom to have a horse, which, which was absent from, from the first line. That's just a short, simple example of how he improved the verse. And he did that throughout the play, and throughout all the other places and there,
1: there you, you do cover the um we uh, say the lord gray as um the the uh Prince's uncle, and he should have been considered uh, Prince Edward's half brother, and it, that, that's uh, a, a mistake on the writer's part. Uh, can can you explain that? Well, I I I th- I thought that was inter-
4: uh, you were going somewhere yes. with that. Yes, that that's another example of uh the support or the proof that uh uh Shakespeare was the was the original author and that he uh rewrote these plays and they were his own plays. That that is an error that has been noticed by scholars. Uh and uh, Shakespeare, in rewriting the play, uh, repeated the error. And that occurs in, in almost every play. There is a, uh, an example of that. I can't think of any others at the moment, but it's uh, it's not uncommon. And also, uh, tiny, tiny details, tiny uh, pieces of uh, type phrases and uh, language um Geographic locations, things of that sort, they they are repeated in 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 the revised play, and uh, that's that's just another example of of the evidence for for my claim that they belong to Shakespeare. It, 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 uh,
1: uh, another aspect of you know, from. Uh, Richard the uh, Third that really caught my attention was uh, you know, the Thirteenth Earl of Oxford was um, a primary supporter of uh, Richard the Third's. Uh, successor, and you, you know this would have been if, if we're going to say that the the real author of the these plays was you know the 17th Earl of Oxford Edward De Vere. You know, he he's writing about his like great great grandfather or so, so, something like you know s- s- several grand great grandfathers, but. um does that show an example of like a yeah youthful teenage boy just kind of like really uh taking pride in his family hair you know you know really blowing up their importance when they really weren't as important as he thought
4: yes yes it is it's something uh, that uh, would be very likely done by a a teenage boy writing about his ancestors especially this teenage boy who had uh, such prominent uh, and well known uh, ancestors Uh, in that play uh, Richard III Third. The 13th Earl was an actual uh, supporter of uh, Henry Tudor, who became Henry VII. And he was instrumental in uh, Henry's uh, successful invasion. And he led the uh, vanguard at the Battle of uh, Bosworth, uh, helping to defeat Richard III. So as, he wasn't so much exaggerating in that play, but in the earlier play, in the famous victories, he did exaggerate tremendously. He placed the 11th Earl of Oxford um, at, at, at the side of the future Henry V, uh, whereas the 11th Earl of Oxford, although he was with Henry V, Uh, in his army at uh, Agincourt. This was uh, 1415. He was not uh, Henry's uh, major uh, confidant and and right-hand man. The uh, the historical chronicles give that uh, role to uh, the Earl of Suffolk and also another earl. So he did exaggerate uh, in that play, the 11th Earl is very prominent in the play. He uh, speaks uh, almost as much as uh, uh, some of the main characters. And he, of course, is uh, the right-hand man for uh, Henry Tudor. Uh, after after the uh, true tragedy of Richard III, he stopped doing that. And it may be that, uh, he uh matured a little bit and realized he shouldn't be doing this or mm-hmm. that you know he would he would be laughed at and so on also it it uh it's quite possible that he was told by his guardian uh William Cecil and perhaps even by the queen that uh he was not to be revealed he should not uh reveal himself as a playwright it was not meet for a nobleman to write plays and uh, especially plays about uh, the monarch and about English history and so he he may have been uh, muffled as it were or muzzled uh, and earls of Oxford do not appear in the Shakespeare canon except a couple of places where they have very short uh, roles or uh, a Small number of lines, so that's a phenomenon uh, of, of these plays that uh, he, he, he gave up that practice.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, the, that example you were just talking about, what w- w- was one a- aspect? You know, it, it came away from, uh, after reading your book about. And you know, we see the growth of the writer you know, from from these uh, juvenile plays to the mature, a, being a mature writer uh, it's, it's you know i think that's one of the aspects of your book that uh, just br- brings something uh you know really fresh to th- this 400-year-old um, um, h- historical mystery, but there, and person, the um, another aspect that I really it, thought was intriguing. What was from – there's also the uh, – from the true tragedy of Richard III that makes us have to reevaluate the traditional dating of these plays. And and there was a line in in there um, about the Queen Elizabeth – the Turk has – Sworn never to lift his hand to wrong the princess of this blessed land. And and you're saying a a line like that. And we have uh, letters from several other heads of state that are talking about um, congratulating her on ascending to the throne. But there are also. some other examples where um the uh, could be interpreted as she uh survived having the smallpox in uh like what was it like fifteen sixty two or so, some some early or right, yes. early on in her reign so so that you know, it's like the, the, those little, small lines that you draw our attention to. Show us the the need that okay, there is some evidence there that makes us really need to consider that some of these um, very early plays date uh, from uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the time period when, uh, De Vere might've been a, a, a teenager in the early 1560s. Uh, did, did, does that correspond with his biography and actually, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth actually did have smallpox at that time?
4: Yes. Yes. The, uh, yeah. the, uh, there are a number of details in uh, True Tragedy that point to the early 1560s. Okay. And uh, one was uh, her near death in uh, the late summer of 1562. She uh, was bedridden and uh, she was expected to die. Uh, and there is a reference to that in the uh, epilogue to the true tragedy of Richard III. This occurred just shortly before Oxford was transferred to William Cecil's house in London. Cecil, of course, was the principal secretary to the queen, extremely close to her. And this uh, event, uh, this uh, near fatal illness would, would have uh, uh, been a a, uh, a subject of uh, much concern and discussion in the Cecil household, and he uh, alluded to it in in his uh, epilogue to that play. And these little these little details that tend to uh, fix a date occur throughout throughout these five plays. There are several in in each play. Uh, that tend to support the uh, idea that uh, they were written during the 1560s. And Oxford's biography uh, supports these early dates. Uh, For instance, in The Troublesome Reign of John, I don't know if you've uh, read that chapter, but uh, that is a play about the reign of King John Mm -hmm. from 1199 to 1216, the play covers the whole range. He is uh, being crowned in the first scene and, and he's being poisoned in the last scene. Uh, in both plays, by the way, Troublesome Rain and King John. Um, but the incident I'm speaking about is a fictional uh, ep- episode that he inserted in the first scene and i don't know if you recall but uh the first scene uh john is being crowned in his court or he has been crowned and and he's being he's uh receiving the ambassadors from france his mother is there and his uh, niece is there and uh, all of his court well this uh Celebration and, and this uh, uh, diplomatic meeting is interrupted by a sheriff who walks in and says he's got a problem. And his problem is uh, the three members of the Falconbridge family are quarreling about who should inherit uh, the lands and wealth of uh, uh, Robert Falconbridge, uh, Sr., who has just died. And uh, the younger brother Philip is claiming that uh, he should be the heir, not the older brother, because um, uh, uh, he was uh, the uh, he. He actually is the child of no his his uh, his uh, older brother Philip uh, Robert is claiming that. Uh, He should be the heir, uh, and that Philip, the younger brother, is not the child of uh, Falcon Bridge Sr., that he is an illegitimate child. Philip uh, uh, disagrees with this, of course, uh, and uh, says that's uh, nothing to it. And the mother, of course, is outraged at this accusation. But it turns out that that is true. That uh, Philip is the bastard son of King Richard the First, who seduced uh, Mrs. Falconbridge, and uh, Gave birth to him, and so he—he he is not the legitimate heir, and uh, uh, Robert is the actual heir. Uh, finally, uh, Lady Falconbridge admits to this, and Philip kind of uh, pats himself on the chest and says, "All right, I admit it. I'm a bastard. I'm a bastard of a king. What what could be a, what could be better?" Anyway, he becomes the uh, King John's right-hand man. And he essentially takes over the play. He, uh, and he's portrayed in the uh, most admirable terms. He is uh, patriotic. He is clever. He is loyal. He is, he is a diplomat. He is brave, etc. So, And this is all complete fiction. None of this happened. There was no Falconbridge family that uh, intervened in John's court and so on. Uh, and this same fictional episode is attached to the canonical King John play. So the writer, Shakespeare of King John, actually appropriated this episode. Now the reason it's important is that the episode is is practically a mirror, of a mirror image of what happened to Oxford at the age of thirteen. That is, he had a half sister, who was the child of his father's first wife. He uh, Edward had a, a sister Mary. Uh, they were children of uh, Oxford's second wife. The, uh, the half-sister Catherine accused Oxford of being illegitimate on the grounds that their father uh, was still married to his first wife when he married his second wife. And therefore, Mary and Edward uh, were illegitimate. That meant that Edward was not only a bastard but he lost his title, his earldom, and his wealth and his land. Now, that, uh, that was a formal accusation made to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and we don't have a very good record, or any record of what happened, except that he uh, retained his earldom and his inheritance and so on. But it was a tremendous threat, as you can imagine, Mm-hmm. To uh, uh, the seventeenth Earl uh, of being deprived of uh, his uh, his personality, uh, so to speak, he inserted this fictional episode into his play about King John. When he rewrote it uh, more than ten years later, he retained that fictional episode. So that connects the play pretty closely to 1563, 64. Uh, Oxford also wrote a poem uh, that, uh, we, that we have, that's extant, uh, mourning the loss of his good name. Uh, that is uh, mourning uh, the loss of his legitimacy and um, being declared a, a bastard. So it's a pretty clear connection uh, between the play, the playwright and the date. And and it extends, as I said, on to uh, the canonical Shakespeare play, King John. Okay, You know, Ramon, you were just uh, covering this,
1: uh, you know, the real author's autobiographical insertion of story into a Someone else's you know, English history play. It's, uh, okay, it, 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 that, that's not the only time that was done. It, it, you cover that there, there was this uh, robbery at uh, Gads Hill that is in the famous histories and reappears in the first Henry the Fourth. Play. Yeah, you're saying that's uh, that was an autobiographical uh, episode as well. Uh, What's the story with uh, this
4: uh, Gads Hill robbery? Well, uh, that's a little less clear. and I don't think it's a reflection of his biography, but uh, there was an incident uh, later in his life when he was uh, 23 or so, when there, there was such an incident. Uh, this was a fictional... Well, it was actually not fictional. It was uh, based on uh, some historical record that Prince Hal uh before he became king uh, uh of, course, of course he hung around with some uh, uh low grade characters uh and he and they uh, uh the uh, the record indicates that he and they occasionally uh held held up the king's receivers the king's uh men who were carrying money from uh, Canterbury or, or Rochester to London and, and robbed them and uh, la- later re- returned the money. So uh, Oxford put that incident into the famous victories of Henry V, his, his first play. Now, in, when he rewrote that play and, and created the Henry Ad, the Henry the IV, Henry V trilogy, he carried over that incident, which, which he had created, and put it in uh, the first part of Henry IV. He changed it a little bit so that it became a, uh, a comical incident. That is, uh, Poynes, Ned Poins, who appears in both plays, by the way, uh, with the same name, he and uh, Prince Hal uh, arranged with uh, some of their fellow Comics to rob uh, rob the king's receivers, and Poins and Prince Hal let let Falstaff and a couple of others do the robbing, and then they rob Falstaff and his friends of the money, and then they have a, all have a conversation about it afterward when they go to the Eastcheap tavern. So that that is. Um, my understanding of this this incident. It is based ultimately on uh, stories about Prince Hal's actual behavior in the first decade of, of the 15th century, well, before he was king. Now, later in Oxford's life, uh, when he was 23 or so, two uh, of, let's see, I think they were uh, uh, William Cecil's men were robbed at Gad's Hill, which, by the way, was a a favorite spot along the road from uh, Rochester to London for holdups of that kind. It was famous for centuries for that kind of robbery taking place. Two of uh, William Cecil's uh, men were robbed, and uh, they complained to Cecil, uh, about the robbery, and they said it was done by the Earl of Oxford's men and, and that he had ordered it. Now, that's all the information we have. We don't know if that was true. Uh, we don't know uh, what happened after that. We don't know why it happened. But uh, many scholars have uh, associated that incident uh, with with the incident in, in uh, 1 Henry IV. But I think that Oxford uh, created it himself, uh, certainly ten years earlier than that. So it's it's kind of a mixed mixed bag. It's it's an, it's an interesting uh, riddle. Mm-hmm. But uh, as, as I say, I think I think Oxford uh, based it on on stories and tales about the about Prince Hal that 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 had survived by then.
2: Well
1: you know as you know, you know you cover this you know the uh Henry the fourth one and two plays and you where know, that leads into uh Henry the fifth you know, uh uh this information uh um you know, a little bit of the autobiographical uh uh, uh, material you just presented, as well as it, the the uh, our re- revising uh, of um, you know, th- th- this trilogy, it, it 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 is important to keep this kind of uh, information in mind because yeah, what uh, maybe about twenty years ago there was that uh Kenneth Branagh uh Henry V movie and i i guess that's just being uh uh, uh it was just remade uh, uh, didn't that win like some kind of like Venice Film Festival award or something? so? so you y know, this uh uh part 3 of this trilogy is you know, right there uh in, in the theaters
4: today, oh yes, uh-huh uh, yes, well, it's a very popular play uh uh most critics don't think it's his best play, but uh uh Henry the and Richard the Third are probably his most popular uh, history plays, and like all good stories uh it is repeatedly remade. Mm-hmm. You know, re refilmed and redone. I saw the uh, Olivier performance years ago, which was uh, uh, a, a great uh, propaganda piece during the Second World War. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and
4: there are people who claim that uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, paid Oxford to write patriotic plays. Uh, I don't agree with that. Um, I, I think he wrote them uh, long before she got the idea. And they're not really patriotic plays. Uh, most of the kings in, in his history plays are either uh, murderers or are, are deposed or murdered themselves. They aren't really uh, plays that, that support uh, support the monarchy. But it's an interesting theory.
1: Yeah, and yeah. – yeah you're just mentioning uh uh yeah uh, sir lawrence olivier's uh H- henry the version I, you also have the Monty python uh guys uh doing some richard the third uh Sections of you know a, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, these lines and characters had been yeah you know, uh, yeah you know, are recycled t- throughout yeah. uh you know, t- well nineteenth uh or twentieth century uh popular entertainment. So it, 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 yeah. You know, it, 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 these characters never get old. That's right. It, that's, it, it, that's right. It, they're, it, they're
4: recreated. Each generation uh, recreates them and and repeats them and readjoins them. Yeah. It, and it, it, you know we have oh, about
1: fifteen minutes left. Uh, you know one. I uh, maybe a couple uh you can give a couple quick answers uh but it you know uh in your book it, it, it does include a uh, you know, really interesting chapter on the two king lear plays um you know, uh, that was made in, in uh, into the uh Kurosawa movie uh ran you know that yeah yeah that, that that was a wonderful ad, uh recreation in a, a Japanese samurai uh setting and, and it's just fantastic how uh, you know these ideas are just e- used by uh, uh other cultures um but it, it anyhow um you know, in the First version of King Lear uh, spelled L E I R. There are like fifty you know, about fifty legal terms. Oh yes. And do you do you want to explain it? it, it yeah, you know, I I thought that was really a, another example where you make a convincing case that. Okay. Yeah, there is a little bit of autobiographical stuff there that can be claimed by De Vere, but not Shakespeare. So,
4: Yes, yes. These five plays, uh, once uh, one accepts the premise that they belong in the Shakespeare canon, and they were written by the Earl of Oxford, they are obviously his earliest plays. Famous Victories is is only half the length of an ordinary Shakespeare play. It's rather crude uh, and clumsy. There are a lot of oaths, a lot of repetition. Um, They gradually get better, but uh, the the five plays are not up to the Shakespeare standard, as I said. Now, uh, looking at the language in each of them, uh, you see, as you mentioned in King Lear, 50 legal terms, legal issues. And I'm not just talking about terms like judge, jury, and defendant, but uh, uh, complicated and, and serious legal terms. In the other four, there aren't any. They do have an occasional judge and um, a divorce or some other reference to a legal matter, but they're essentially a void of uh, legal terms all the other plays in the Shakespeare canon are full of legal terms and legal issues. It's well known that uh, Shakespeare was uh, well educated in the law. Uh, He knew it backwards and forwards, and he knew the language of the law especially, and he used it in his plays. So the point is that Oxford, at age 16, entered Gray's Inn the one of the uh, law schools in Elizabethan England. And he spent two or three years there. It was a residential program. It was actually only about a mile from uh, where he was living in London at uh, William Cecil's house. So it appears that uh, it, 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 it seems that you can assign four of the five anonymous plays to the period before he entered uh Law School and learned the language of the law, and the fifth one, King Lear, and all the other plays in the canon are full of legal terms that he learned at uh, at Gray's Inn. One other example is uh, Edmund Ironside, another anonymous play that belongs mm-hmm. in the Shakespeare Canon, and that's another play uh, uh, history play takes place. Uh, in the eleventh uh, century, and it is full of legal terms and legal issues. In fact, Eric Sams, the critic, said it sounded like all the characters had been to law school. And, and these, were, these were Saxons and Vikings, you know, They were not uh, tutor uh, law students, which Oxford was. So that's just another uh, detail that tends to confirm uh, the date and the placement uh, of these five plays.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I I, I was just – and, you know, the Edmund Ironside, uh, you know, we'll have to have you come back and discuss uh, on another show. Yeah, you've made some really compelling cases that we need to really evaluate. Uh,
4: Another example is uh, the two shrew plays. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: I don't know if you have time for me to talk about that. Uh, Uh,
1: We have about nine minutes.
4: Okay, well, uh, the first shrew play, Taming of a Shrew, uh, Oxford wrote, uh in his teenage age 14 or 15 he said it in uh athens it was uh, based on a, on a latin play by the playwright Plautus. uh he said it in athens the characters were greek uh there were uh greek geography as mentioned throughout the uh play um and he rewrote that about uh 10 years later when he was in Italy and my theory is that uh Oxford uh as you know traveled to Italy uh when he was uh almost 25 and he, he spent about war. that's right and he spent almost uh he spent about 18 months in Europe uh, most of it in Italy he established a household in Venice and he traveled around the country uh Uh, especially uh, by boat which was the easiest way to get around well in november 1575 he was in padua and he wrote a letter uh, from there to william cecil uh, about getting some more money for for his trip and and we have we have the letter so my theory is that when he got to italy and he was exposed to italian drama And to the Italian theater, which was much more advanced than the English theater. Uh, And he probably met some Italian playwrights. He saw some uh, Italian plays. He decided he would set his next play in Italy. And then decided that rather than write a new play, he would revise one of his older plays and set it in Italy. And so he did. The Taming of the Shrew that we're familiar with is set in Padua, and uh, one of our scholars, Richard Rowe, who traveled to Italy and uh, did some research on these locations uh, found the actual place uh, in Padua on the inner canal uh, that is the uh, setting for the first scene in The Taming of the Shrew. But Having uh, transferred the play to Italy, he changed all the characters to Italians. And he brought in his knowledge of Italian customs and Italian geography um, and uh, financial practices and so on. So uh, it it seems pretty clear that 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 is the uh, progression of of his uh, creation of, of these two plays he wrote one uh, at an early age based on a a Latin uh, model. And then when he got to Italy, rewrote it and just transported it and and reconfigured it, transformed it into an Italian play, uh, his first Italian play. And he went on to write five or six more Italian plays in the next, uh, oh, six or seven years. Okay, cool.
1: Want have to have you uh, back and go, go over th- this information in more detail, but you know, in, in the uh, five minutes or so we have left, um, w- it, what w- will you be discussing at the, uh, conf- the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship Conference in Hartford?
4: Well, actually, I'm not going to be on the program on, on uh, this year. I, I have been on most of them recently, but I'm skipping this one. But there are a number of other uh, interesting speakers. And, of course, the location is in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, and we're meeting at the Mark Twain Gallery uh, uh, in a way honoring Mark Twain, who... Uh, was one of the early authorship doubters and he was such a strong doubter that shakespeare of stratford wrote anything that he wrote an entire book is shakespeare dead about the authorship uh, question he wrote this uh, around 1910 1905 somewhere around there and he re- he remained a uh, a strong doubter he he was not familiar with the oxford theory because it hadn't been uh proposed yet so we have uh thursday friday and uh saturday and half a day sunday we have uh oh something like 15 different speakers some of them fairly well known hank whittemore is uh going to speak on on the pen name and um John Hamill, the president of the uh, Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, is, is going to uh, give us some information about the results of our research grant program. You know, the fellowship uh, makes small grants to scholars to investigate the authorship question. We've made at, at least a dozen or more. We have uh, some scholars uh, going through archives in uh, Italy and others uh, visiting uh, libraries and museums in uh, in England. Um, Mark Anderson, uh, author of uh, Shakespeare by Another Name, a, a, a best-selling uh, authorship book, is going to be speaking uh, on uh, Friday. Uh, Rick Wagaman will be uh, speaking. Also, Tom Renee, our uh, lawyer, speaking. Uh, his, his talk is titled uh, Kill All the Lawyers. Roger Strat probably the best known uh, authorship uh, scholar, will be speaking uh on Saturday. And uh we'll be uh having a uh, a uh a, a banquet on uh Sunday and giving different awards and so on. So mm-hmm. the public is invited uh and uh it's uh, relatively easy to uh, show up. Uh, I'm sure one can get in without paying anything for uh, one or two uh, of these uh, days of, of talks. And uh, uh, someone can sign up for the full conference and pay the registration fee and, and be treated with uh, lunch and dinner and banquet and, and so on. So uh, it'll be our, uh, our first conference in Connecticut We've had conferences in, uh, in Oakland and Toronto and Chicago and uh, Minneapolis and Madison. Uh, we have one every year and uh, we'd, we'd like people to come and, and hear about the uh, authorship question and, and hear the, the very interesting research into all aspects of this question. This is an enormous subject. There are a uh, hundred different alleys, one can run down and, and find something uh, significant to uh, to write about and, and to talk about.
1: Okay, well, and uh, we'll have Alex McNeil on next Wednesday uh, talking about uh, Justice John Paul Stevens' uh, interest oh, yeah. in, in, in this uh, subject and how he you know, is trained to weigh all the evidence, and uh, yeah, I, I'm, that's going to be an interesting discussion. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking with Alex about that next uh, Wednesday. But um, yeah, it, it, and if they, if uh, you know, listeners want to know any more about the conference or what the fellowship is doing, they can go to uh, ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org, dot org, and all the information is there so uh
4: that's right yeah,
1: and yeah we're uh down to the last minute so i i just want to thank uh Steve for being a great first hour guest and uh Ramon- t- thank you for uh a- enlightening us on this uh subject uh, and you know, best wishes for the conference uh we'll see the listener or uh you can tune in tomorrow night for uh Barbara and Mary doing their show and we'll be back next uh, Wednesday so I just want to thank thank everyone and we'll see you tomorrow night